Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Carolyn Howell, MBE. Carolyn is the CEO of Solo Housing East Anglia Limited, a company which provides a range of affordable accommodation options for single people. Carolyn, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme this afternoon. Hello and thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you uh, from our point of view as well, Carolyn. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So looking aside at that word leader just for a moment, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. I think for me, uh, a leader is somebody who can set out a vision um, and set out an idea maybe of, of something that needs to happen, um, taking into account different viewpoints, maybe being quite consultative around taking account of what other people feel about things. Um, so not being a dictator, in other words, but really um, formulating an idea, testing it out with people, taking into account their feedback, and really trying to engage with people to take that idea forward. And thinking about your personal leadership style, if you will, particularly when it comes to people management, how would you describe that in the context of the company that you run? I think, again, it it is trying to be as inclusive as possible um, in in my sort of leadership style. Um, I joined Solo Housing uh, three years ago now. and we're a small organization, um, but we have quite diverse services. And we have staff that work in different locations so people don't see each other all the time. And so it's really important to try and be consistent and communicate with people as much as possible um, and give them the opportunity to communicate back and, and feedback ideas. So over the last three years, we've actually done quite a lot of work really um, looking at what our vision for our organisation is, um, asking people what that should look like, and then setting out our objectives and a business plan to to make people feel that they're part of a journey, I suppose, really, and and a process that they can engage in to take something forward and, and get behind completely understand where you're coming from uh, Carolyn and um, I can imagine that during the uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that's ongoing at the moment of course it's been a time for inclusivity and making sure that the communication channels are very open. Um, how has it been adapting to the challenges that the pandemic has brought about as a small supported accommodation provider because I can imagine it has thrown up a few issues for the likes of yourselves as well. It has definitely, uh, predominantly our accommodation for single people is shared accommodation. So there's a lot to think about in terms of people, moving people into accommodation where they perhaps don't know each other, they're from different households effectively, moving them in together and sharing accommodation and helping them to still feel safe within that accommodation and, and understand what all the guidelines are around social distancing are, et cetera. Um, I think we could see what was coming before the lockdown. We 
anticipated that there was going to be a lockdown. So we really took the decisions around the priorities being keeping our existing residents safe and making them making sure that they felt secure in their homes, um, keeping our staff safe. So setting up ways of working and processes very quickly, which meant that they could work in, in a safe environment, but continue to do their job. And also looking at our accommodation, where we had accommodation available, to make sure we filled up that accommodation as much as possible. So that was really part of the process of making sure that people could get off the streets if they needed to, if they were um, sleeping rough or homeless. Um, so that was quite a focus, really, uh, back in March. We then had the lockdown, and we really had to think about how staff were working. Predominantly, everybody started to work from home. Um, and so that was a different way that they you know, previously worked, I suppose. And it also meant that the way that they supported our residents, where they would normally perhaps go and see people, do lots of face-to-face work, it was more remote working, telephone contact, um, you know, different ways, different ways of working. So part of that really was making sure that staff felt confident and safe in what they were doing, um, because that then translates to how they come across to our residents, who many of whom feel very vulnerable. They're quite vulnerable um, before a pandemic, but to to then have to sort of face a, a pandemic and the sort of fear. That, that might bring um, was certainly quite challenging for, for some people. It is a challenge because people do react to different things in different ways, let alone, of course, a crisis such as COVID-19. So it's important as a leader to adapt your approach to make sure that you're essentially being able to reassure different people. Some might not necessarily need a great deal of motivation to keep working, even under difficult conditions, whereas others might be just that little bit more apprehensive. And that's really thrown the importance of mental health and well-being back into the forefront of our minds as well during this time. Uh, from, a leadership, from a leadership perspective for you, Carolyn, just how important do you think the role of mental health and well-being is, both in terms of looking after your own and also that of those around you? It's absolutely vital. I think particularly within the sector that we work with, we work with very vulnerable people. Um, and so, um, you know, that that can have an emotional um, impact on, on our staff as, as well as our service users. So making sure that people had access to any support mechanisms that were available to them around mental health support and well-being, just making sure that people were sort of working appropriately and just because they were working from home not sort of feeling that they had to carry on working into the evening so we were quite clear with people around you know you need to sort of start and finish your day in in, in your normal working hours um don't be tempted to keep looking at your emails etc um and we actually found that there were a range of services um started to come available in terms of online and, and telephone support We've got a lot of support from our local authorities that we work with very closely, and that was absolutely invaluable. Um, so they supported us with that, and that meant that we could basically support our staff who then in turn support our residents. So it was very much a sort of a chain chain reaction, really. Um, I certainly needed to manage my own mental health, I suppose. Um, I was uh, 
predominantly the only person sort of in going into the office every day, which was a very different experience and having staff around you. Um, so yeah, keeping an eye on things and just being aware of where you're starting to spot either somebody seems very stressed or down or recognizing that in yourself is, is absolutely vital. It is exactly. And um, thinking about sort of what the lockdown period has sort of brought with it, it, we're constantly reviewing our working practices, aren't we? It's brought in a great debate about how we're ultimately going to be functioning in various industries under the uh, the new normal going forward. Um, in your case, Carolyn, um, are there any features of the lockdown period that have become a norm that could end up being a permanent way that you operate in future, do you think? I, I think so. I think that we will be um, more flexible around how people work. I mean, we've always tried to be very flexible, but people did tend to feel that they needed to come into the office um, quite frequently, even if to sort of check in um, and touch base. And I think that has changed quite significantly. Prior to um, the lockdown, we were looking actually at sort of improved office working environment. And we had a very sort of what we thought was a very clear idea, really, about the numbers of people that needed to work in, in, the, in the main office. And I think that's all really been thrown up now and sort of we're reconsidering that approach and how do we create a working environment that's both um, sort of out in the field, so people feel they're still part of us, um, but also the ability to come in and, and do things when they need to actually come in to an office environment. So I think that's changed. I think the way that we support our residents has evolved in this process and will probably continue to a certain extent in terms of um We'll go back to more face-to-face work, I think. That's that's what residents like. But working on the telephone with them has been very effective and actually some of them have found that more flexible and and easier to manage. Perhaps days they don't quite face having somebody coming around, but they can still have that contact. So I think we've learned that we can mix it up a little bit, really, um, and provide different ways of working that perhaps adapt to an individual and how they want to respond to our support as well. So I think a lot of that has changed. Um, the way we work with our lodgings, landlords um, will change, for example, in terms of we'll still go out and visit them, but you know we need to support them to make sure that if there's any ongoing guidance around the pandemic, that we're helping them in, in that environment as well. Um, so, yeah, quite quite a lot of change really and there's been quite a lot to to think about and it's daily sometimes things have changed as new bits of guidance have have come out and we've needed to convey that information out both to our staff but also to our residents that's, that's really important that we keep communicating with them where things have changed so that they understand what the new normal might be looking like um so yeah i think it, it's definitely made us think again about some things but it also made us aware that there's probably new opportunities on the horizon potentially in in ways that we could perhaps expand our service Um, I think some of the work that the government is doing could throw up some opportunities for us which we had started to look at and I think once we're not locked down quite so much um, we can certainly start to take that forward and that's what we've been working on in the last week in terms of 
some of that activity. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's really challenging and I think people are going to have a very difficult time. Um, but I think, you know, it's made a focus on, on some areas and think about different ways of doing things as well, definitely. And in terms of yourself and in terms of solo housing, Carolyn, what do you envision on the horizon over the next 12 to 18 months? And what do you really hope to achieve during that period as we adapt to the new normal? I think continuing to make sure that we are providing a safe working environment is going to be absolutely sort of at the forefront of everything that we do. Um, but we do want to pick up on some work that we have been looking to develop. So prior to the lockdown, we've done quite a lot of consultation with stakeholders to look at what kind of services we should be um, looking to develop in the future. So key area for us to pick up now is the opportunity to perhaps develop some and build some of our own accommodation. We do own some accommodation and we'd like to expand that. Clearly, there's a need that's certainly come out as part of the pandemic in terms of the number of people out on the streets who need accommodation. Um, so that's going to be really important. And we also have some new projects that we're just uh, starting up, working with uh, female offenders coming out of prison, providing them with accommodation, and another project working with uh, rough sleepers um, in one of our district areas. So quite a lot to think about um but yeah it, it feels quite exciting um in the new new ways that people are going to be working i suppose yeah <laughs> certainly interesting times even amid all of the uncertainty and uh i think it's one thing speculating exactly what is going to happen in the next uh, few months and it's another entirely just waiting to see what happens and then assessing just what has gone on so given just how insightful it's been having you join us this afternoon carolyn to discuss this i think it would be great to have you back on the program with us in a few months time just to catch up and see how things are getting on at solo housing and see just what sort of new normal it's shaping up to be as well absolutely yeah i'd be more than happy to come back and and talk about what we've been doing and whether or not we've been able to take some of our ideas forward definitely hopefully there'll be some positive news to share on that front for sure i have to say carolyn it's been a real pleasure having you join us on today's program so i thank you once again uh, for taking the time to join us and until we do speak again in future please do take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with covid19 yet that is for sure no thank you very much and look after yourself too thank you and for those listening in, please do take care, look after yourselves and be sensible despite everything beginning to reopen gradually because it really does make a difference in saving people's lives. I was speaking there to Carolyn Howell, MBE, CEO of Social Solo Housing East Anglia Limited. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with the former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, former Labour MP and Secretary of State and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in all August of 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. 
All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who 
may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required 
Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. 
I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world 
except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 
through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters 
But I believe that Shakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies 
but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.